0: and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, we come once more to the wonderful feast of Corpus Christi, this feast of the body and blood of Jesus. And we have, accordingly, another chance to reflect on the meaning of the Eucharist. How wonderful that the Church brings us back over and over again to the Eucharist, which is, properly speaking, an inexhaustible mystery. The Eucharist is Christ. The Church comes from the Eucharist. And so, it's so wise and good for us to reflect on it over and over again. In this cycle of readings, the Church draws our attention to this intriguing and mysterious figure of Melchizedek. This character is mentioned, briefly enough, only three times in the entire Bible. The first mention now is our first reading for today. It's taken from the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis. is describing an incident that occurred just after Abraham, our father in faith, won a military victory. And we hear he was met by Melchizedek, who's described as the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. Now, there's a great deal packed into those words, into that description. In Hebrew, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech is king, Zedek is justice. So he's the just king, the righteous king. More to it, Salem, he's described as a king of Salem, is derived from shalom, meaning peace. Salem was also seen as a forerunner of the city of Jerusalem, Yerushalom. shalom And so this figure is the... Righteous king of peace, who is also a ruler of Jerusalem. See all that's kind of packed into the way he's described. Furthermore, we hear that he's a priest of God, that means someone who performs a sacrifice, and the particular sacrifice that he makes involves bread and wine. Hmm, Does this sound like anyone you know? <laughs> king of righteousness king of Jerusalem, prince of peace, priest performing a sacrifice involving bread and wine. You see why the church has found this figure so in- intriguing. The second time in the Bible that Melchizedek has mentioned is in the 110th Psalm, which is a song for the dedication of the king. So when the king was coronated, they think they would sing this psalm. One of the lines is, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, it's a song for the coronation of a king, but he's called a priest. This was basic in the ancient world, and in fact was true up until almost modern times. You know, the, the king of France was also seen as a priest, which is why he was anointed. The king had power from God, and he also offered sacrifice to God. So all the Davidic kings in the Old Testament were seen as new Melchizedeks, if you want, priest kings. But, but, this psalm in particular seems to be looking forward to a very definitive king. Listen, the Lord says, rule over your enemies in holy splendor before the day star, like the dew I begot you. The Lord has sworn he will not waver. You are a priest forever like Melchizedek of old well this is not just any old king is it this is a king who was begotten from all time and he will be a priest and king forever what's being envisioned here is the definitive Melchizedek the priest king for all ages now This connection was made very explicitly by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. And that's the third time in the Bible that Melchizedek is mentioned. Go to chapter 7 of the letter to the Hebrews and you'll find all this. And he makes the connections I've just made. That Jesus is the definitive king. Jesus is the definitive priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's why the church now associates this figure so strongly with Jesus. Okay, now with all that Melchizedek uh, business in mind, all those connections in mind, that Jesus is the priest-king, he's the king-priest, let's turn to the other two readings for today for the Feast of Corpus Christi. The second reading is taken from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. It's the earliest text we have Concerning the Eucharist. It predates the Gospels by uh, the earliest Gospel by uh, about 20 years. Paul says, The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. And then the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. What did Jesus do the night before he died? He didn't just gather with his friends for a meal. He did that. That's true. But Paul's telling us very clearly that Jesus performed a priestly sacrifice. And he did it using the same elements that Melchizedek used, bread and wine. What's the logic of sacrifice? Though I know it's it's alien to us, but it's actually quite simple. In any sacrifice, we return to God some aspect of creation in order to show our gratitude to God for all his gifts. Now, as I've said to you many times, God doesn't need our petty sacrifices, but, but it pleases him to receive them, for they are an expression of justice. They make us just, they establish the right relationship between us and God. You can think of like a little kid who offers a a gift to his parents. I mean, the parents don't need the gift, not as though they see it as something objectively of great high value, but they treasure the gift because it's an expression of their their child's love and, and gratitude. Something similar, I think, obtains in regard to God and our sacrifices. He doesn't need them. He's not acknowledging their enormous objective value, but he delights in them because they establish us in right relationship. Remember, again, the meaning of Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. Righteousness happens through sacrifice. Now, things get a little more complicated when you take sin into consideration. Now, now our acts of gratitude and thanksgiving will hurt. Why? Because they will involve a reordering of the self. Sin is always a kind of act of gratitude. To sin is to fall out of right relation to God. It's not to acknowledge the primacy of God. Therefore, When the sinner approaches God in sacrifice, that sacrifice will hurt. Now we begin to understand the importance of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. When the blood of the animal is poured out, when the life of the animal is lost in sacrifice, what we see is an external sign of our painful inner sacrifice. Think of bread and wine as as the more uh, straightforward, the the less painful sacrifice. You might say sacrifice as it ought to be. Think of animal sacrifice as the kind that happens in the state of sin, where it always involves pain. Now, Now, with that in mind, revisit again what Jesus did the night before he died. Taking these simple elements of bread and wine, like Melchizedek, but then doing something even more dramatic than animal sacrifice. Because he identifies those elements with his very self, with his body and blood, and says they will be offered, the body will be given, the blood will be poured out. This is not one sacrifice among many, but this is the sacrifice, painful, yes, it's the pain of the cross, the sacrifice which sums up, recapitulates, gathers unto itself, All of the sacrifices of the human race. Because by this one act, Jesus will make righteous the human race. He will be Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. More to it, he'll be the king of Salem, the king of Shalom, the king of peace. This sacrifice reestablishes right order between us and God. Now, just a glance at our gospel reading, which is Luke's version of the feeding of the 5,000. If the first Corinthians reading highlights the priestly side of Melchizedek, Jesus offering a sacrifice, this one highlights the kingly side. He's a priest king. One of the great tasks of the king of Israel, any king really, was to gather and to feed his people. How important that is. The king of the nation was not there just to bask in glory. The king had a very definite task. He was to be a symbol of the unity of the people, the one who would affect their unity. Think of the importance in the Old Testament of Saul and then David after him, gathering the tribes together. That was the king's task. Otherwise, the nation would just fall apart into bickering uh, uh, tribes was a symbol of unity and an instrument of care. Made sure the people were taken care of, that they were fed. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, who as vizier of Egypt, fed the people during a time of famine. Well, that's the king's role. Well, as this story in Luke now gets underway, we hear the disciples want to dismiss the crowds. So they could fend for themselves. See, that's the instinct of sin. Divide us up. Send them away. But Jesus has come as Melchizedek, as a new king. Therefore, not to scatter, but to gather. Taking the little his disciples can find, he multiplies it for the feeding of the crowd. This is Yahweh. Feeding ancient Israel with manna in the desert. This is the true king feeding the multitudes of Israel up and down the ages. Including, yes, the new Israel of the church. See friends, this is precisely what happens at every mass. At every mass, we come together to commune with Melchizedek. To commune with the priest king of righteousness, who performs this great sacrifice of the cross, who offers his body and blood, and thereby brings righteousness and peace to us. More to it, we commune with the king, who has gathered us together from all our different places and walks of life, has gathered us together precisely to feed us and to sustain us with his body and blood. Go back to that uh, 14th chapter of the book of Genesis. Look at that little passage dealing with this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, the Prince of Salem, who offers bread and wine. And then realize the true and definitive Melchizedek is come, And that every time we gather for the Virgin, we commune with him. And God bless you.